week 10 of our, of our James series called How Faith Works. And uh, we've said something like this on the front end of every one of these teachings. James is a book that is written to tell you practically on a day-to-day level what your life will look like if the faith you claim in Jesus is real. So today we're going to be talking about something that you would have to be an absolute lunatic to pray for. That's this thing called patience. We're going to be in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, which says this. Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome of the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. This is God's word. Patience is a really interesting virtue because when you hold it up alongside the other fruits of the Spirit, um, it's just about the only one that seemingly has, uh, or at least can have, a negative connotation in our culture. What I mean by that is whether, whether you know, you believe in God, you believe in the Bible or not, you can be, you know, secular or highly religious, uh, pretty much everybody agrees that things like love, joy, and peace, those are still admirable. Those are still valuable. People still really want those. Uh, but you talk about patience in, in a culture as, as pragmatic as ours, as fast-paced as ours, you know, that's constantly indoctrinating us with this idea that we deserve to have our needs met right now, uh, patience is kind of slowly but surely stop being seen as a virtue. Uh, and I think a lot of times it's seen as a weakness. It's seen as you're just settling. It's seen as you have a lack of ambition. But the truth is you and I are going to have an incredibly difficult time in this life if we don't see the value of patience. This week I came across an, an article from, I don't know if you ever read this, it was from Psychology Today. Uh, it was written about seven years ago. The article is called Crisis U. You can Google it when you go home. You, uh, as in university, Crisis U. And the article was uh, written to figure out if young Americans were, in fact, becoming more psychologically fragile than their predecessors. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've heard this before, but there's been a lot of anecdotal talk that, um, you know, young people are, are less psychologically resilient than the people that came before them. And if we're being fair, I think every generation has said that about the generation that comes after them since the dawn of time. And so this article was written to figure out, is that just anecdotal talk or is there, is there truth, is there, is there substance to that? And the article actually discovered that there's quantifiable evidence that young American adults, specifically on college campuses, are less resilient than their predecessors. And there was one line in the article that was real grabby just wanted to read it to you. It says, for young American adults, there is no psychic middle ground. Frustration catapults into crisis. Hear that again. Frustration catapults into crisis. And what that's saying and what the, what the whole article's point was is that increasingly as a society, we're, coming, we're becoming marked by this inability to deal with any kind of frustration without being launched into a crisis. We don't know how to dwell in what that article referred to as a psychic middle ground. And that middle ground, if you're wondering what that means, that middle ground is really just 
the space between where you are and where you want to be. Uh, and, and the truth is, patience is the virtue that creates that middle ground. Patience is what allows you to live in the in-between. Patience is what allows you to dwell there with any kind of resilience whatsoever because this is just the fact. Without patience, everything becomes a catastrophe. Everything becomes a, a reason to melt down. Everything becomes a crisis. And, and so regardless of how our culture views patience, regardless of how you and I personally view patience, Without it, we are going to disintegrate. We're going to die a thousand deaths. We're going to have a really tough time in this life. And we're going to crumble under the weight of every disappointment and every conflict and every setback and every obstacle that we are sure to face in this life. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, nobody wants that for themselves. But here's the good news. God doesn't want, us, want that for us either. God does not desire any of his children to live that way. And what we have here in James uh, is this incredible passage that's written to help us understand, <clears throat> first off, what patience is. Secondly, the kinds of patience that we need, because there's more than one kind of patience you might be surprised to hear. But then lastly, how we can develop all of those kinds of patience. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So first, <clears throat> I think it makes most sense uh, to begin simply talking about what patience is. And in this passage, James uses two main words to refer to it. Uh, when you put them together, they, they kind of complete each other and they give you a good understanding of what patience is. And I'm just going to tell you, in a culture as impatient as ours, patience is a superpower, all right? In, in the, the first verses, specifically seven and eight of this passage, the word James uses, translated patience, is the Greek word makrothumio, which literally means to be of a long spirit. That's the literal translation. It's that idea from which we get the term long-suffering. And what that's getting at is the ability to bear up in a situation and continue working when you are not seeing what you want to see. You're not getting the results that you want to get. It's the ability to bear up under that and continue. Uh, much like, as, as James mentions here, a farmer waiting for crops to grow, all right? The second word James uses here that he uses in the, in the final paragraph of this passage is the Greek word hupomino, which literally means to hyperstand. And what that's getting at is the ability uh, to stand unmoved despite being in a situation that you really don't want to be in. So when you put these two halves of patience together, uh, you, you get an understanding of what the Bible's talking about when it talks about patience. On the one hand, patience is the ability to keep moving even when you're not getting what you want. Uh, on the other hand, patience is the ability to stand unmoved when you are getting what you do not want. That's what patience is. And in this, this little uh, block of, of text here, uh, James walks us through and lays out for us four kinds of patience that you and I need if we're going to live this life well. Uh, so so let's, let's walk through all four of them. And I, I, I'm just absolutely positive, whoever you are, whatever God's doing in your life right now, um, what you're going through requires at least one of these kinds of patience. And I'll, I'll just give them to you on the front end. It's patience with life, patience with people, Patience in suffering, and lastly, this might surprise you, but actually patience with God. So let's walk through all four of those. The first one is patience with life, and you read about this in verses 7 and 8. It says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. Verse 8, you also must be patient. So to, to me, what James is saying here is universally applicable, but to understand it, we've got to really dig into this metaphor a little bit. 
Um, for a Palestinian farmer in, in James's day, there were really only two rains that had to come. And it's amazing, you, you can survey the Old Testament in over, a half, in, in over a half dozen Old Testament books, God Himself makes reference of these two rains. They're specifically connected with God's promise to be faithful and to take care of His people. They were the early and the late rains. Uh, the early rains took place round about autumn. Uh, after a, a really long and a really hot su- uh, summer, it was the early rains in autumn that put enough moisture in the ground for you to even be able to plant. Without those rains, there was no point in, in doing anything at all. But once those rains came, uh, you know, when you, and you worked your fields and you, you sowed and all that kind of stuff, basically your entire life waited on the late rains, um, which came in the spring. It was the late rains that would fill out your crops and make sure that all of the blood, sweat, and tears you had put into your fields were actually worthwhile. Um, And and so I I just ask you for a moment here to consider the situation that the farmers in James's day were in when they were in between these rains. And and keep in mind, this is a situation that they were in every single year. Um, When you were living in between the rains, you were in this place where you had invested everything that you had in your fields. Uh, you had nearly broken your back in order, uh, you know, to do what is, is, is responsible so that you can be fed and your family can be fed and you can make a profit and you can continue to live. But for about nine months from those early rains to those late rains, as a farmer, you had almost nothing to show for it. Uh, and so the great temptation for farmers in that day and age was to look out at your field, specifically the closer you got to those spring rains and to allow your mind to play tricks on you. The great temptation was to look at your fields and to see that the meager, the meager crops you were able to grow were beginning to wilt and say, well, what if the rains don't come this year? What if this is the year that it just doesn't happen? And, and, and so your, your mind starts to go, you kind of get into this anxiety spiral, and you start to tell yourself, maybe it would be worth it to just harvest everything that I have now, cut my losses, call it a day, and take matters into my own hands because those rains are never going to come. Of course, if you did that, you would only have a, a, a fraction to show for, for all of your work compared to what you would have if you had just held on and you had trusted God to do something with, with all of your work and all of your energy and all of your toil that you could not immediately see. And when you realize what James is talking about here, you realize this is, this is basically where I believe we live probably 99% of our lives. Right, I'm, I'm confident that, that pretty much everybody who hears this message is either in a situation like this right now or God has led you through a situation like this probably multiple times in your life where you just find yourself asking yourself the question, is any of this going to be worth it? That's, what it? that's what it feels like to live between the reins. Right? Maybe you feel like that in your marriage where you know, you've gone to counseling and you've read the books and you've tried the techniques, and yet it's, it's just not working. You feel like you're just having the same fights over and over again. It's the same tension. It's the same distance. And in the back of your mind, you're just thinking, is this worth it? Or should I just call it quits? You know, maybe, maybe you feel like this in your, in your personal life, where you're, you're here, here you are, however many years later, you're still dealing with the same habits, the same hang-ups, the same addictions, the same destructive behaviors, the same fears, the same insecurities, that you were however long ago. You swore you wouldn't be here, but here you are. You don't really feel like any different of a person. You're wondering, is this even worth it? You know, or, or maybe you feel like this in your spiritual life where you've read the Bible and you've prayed 
and you've worshiped corporately and privately, and you, you're serving and you're giving and you're confessing all known sin and you're trying to deal with the idols of your heart and apply the gospel, but you just don't feel this intimacy with God and this vibrancy and this I once was lost, but now I'm found was, was blind, but now I see kind of feeling that so many other followers of Jesus have described and you're wondering, is it even worth it for me to keep doing this? Is there something that, that works for everybody else that just doesn't wor- work for me? Should I just cut and run here? And, and, and what I want to tell you is, first off, James's words here are a reminder, and I hope this is as encouraging to you as it should be. What James is saying here is a reminder that you and I should not be surprised when we feel like that, and we should not be surprised when we feel like that for long periods of time. We should, we should not be surprised when we find ourselves in between reigns where we look out across our lives and we just don't see the growth that we had imagined would be there by now. We just haven't reaped the harvest that we were so looking forward to at some point in our lives. We're, de- we're dealing with this, this deep uh, kind of fervent desire in our hearts to just take matters into our own hands and walk by sight what we can see rather than faith what God has revealed in His Word. I mean, you look at the book of Psalms and Psalms is, is essentially one long prayer book that is literally filled with prayers that are birthed from people that were in that same place. Right? You read the, the Bible cover to cover, and what it is, you know, at its core, it's the story of person after person after person that God led to that place and, frankly, left in that place for a very long period of time. You, know, you, you think about the story of Abraham. God comes to Abraham and promises that he's going to make him this great nation through which the entire world is going to be blessed. And of course, who wouldn't want to be used by God that powerfully? But then Abraham had to wait 25 years for just the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise to take place. You know, you look at the life of Moses that had a, he had a divine calling on his life to be the deliverer of God's people, to bring them out of slavery and to the border of this promised land. But then you get into the details of his life and you realize, you know, he took matters into his own hands early on by killing this Egyptian taskmaster, so he had to flee into the wilderness for no less than 40 years. D.L. Moody has this amazing quote about Moses' life. This is so encouraging to me. He said, Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. 40 years learning he was nobody, and 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. (laughs) David was a young man that had an anointing given to him by the prophet of God, Samuel, that he would sit on the throne of Israel. Despite that anointing, God allowed David to live on the run from a murderous tyrant named Saul for over eight years. And for eight years, David's closest confidants were saying, kill this guy already. God's delivered him into your hands, and he wouldn't raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. I was even thinking about, you know, the, the, the space between the Old and the New Testament, the space between Malachi and Matthew, that's a turn of a page for us. That was 400 years for God's people. 400 years when no prophet spoke on behalf of God. When people you know were wondering, is he just done with us? Have we messed his plans up? Have we taxed his patience so much that he's just forgotten about us altogether? I mean, who could blame him? And then at the end of that, God breaks the silence to announce the birth of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, of whom Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself said that among people born of women, no one was greater than John the Baptist. He was, 
you know, through a certain lens, you could say John the Baptist was the first celebrity preacher. People flocked to him, got baptized by him, hung on his every word. But when John the Baptist got jammed up and thrown in prison and was staring down the barrel of his own mortality, even he, the cousin of Jesus Christ, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, sent messengers to Jesus asking him, are you the one we've waited for or should we be waiting for somebody else? However you want to paint that, that is a crisis of faith. That's somebody saying, is any of this worth it? Is any of this, does this mean anything? Does this count for anything? Was I wrong about everything? Has all of it been wasted? None of us, as surprised as we are, as surprised as I am, a cursory reading of the Bible from end to end would tell us that place, that, that, that place in between the reins, that has been a vital part of the path that God lays out for people ever since he's been working with people. It is a necessary part of our development. So first off, we shouldn't be surprised by it. But, but more than that, to everyone who finds themselves in that place this morning, James would say that those places are why the patience we're talking about is so, it, so necessary. Because without that patience, we will never see what God could have otherwise done if we had just trusted him even when we couldn't immediately see what he was up to. So first off, we need patience with life. But secondly, if that one didn't hit you, chances are the second one will. Secondly, we need patience with people. The 9 a.m. giggled when I said that. So I guess none of you all have interpersonal problems. In verse 9, it says, Brothers, do not complain about one another. And this is a curious little connector here. So that you will not be judged. Now, this is another one of those verses in James. If you follow along in this series, you've seen a number of these. Every once in a while, James just has a verse that kind of seems to come out of nowhere. And, of course, it's true and it's wise and it's great advice. But you're wondering, what does that have to do with everything else you were saying? And, and verse 9 is like that because in the verses before this, James is talking about patience. In the verses after this, he's talking about patience. And he almost interrupts himself to say, by the way, don't complain about each other. Uh, and, and you, you find yourself asking, well, you know, what does that have to do with anything? The truth is James has not changed the subject here. What he's doing is he's just speaking about one of the main areas of our lives that require patience, which is our relationships with other people. Let's make sure that we understand what he's saying here. My version translates this verse. Uh, the command is not to complain about one another. I actually don't think that's the best translation. And if you read this verse in most other versions, you'll find that it says not to grumble. Don't grumble. And uh, I think that's actually a better way to phrase this because the word that James uses literally means to sigh or groan. Uh, it's about just expressing negative emotions. And when you look at how it's used in the New Testament, it's clear that this can be either an outward thing or an inward thing, meaning you can grumble outwardly or you can grumble inwardly. You know, grumbling outwardly means that you're the type of person because of your temperament. Uh, you don't keep a whole lot of things to yourself, you know? You, you feel this need uh, to tell other people how they let you down and didn't meet your, your expectations or live up to your standards, or maybe you gossip about them and slander them when they're not there. Those are people that grumble outwardly. People that grumble, grumble inwardly um, tend to develop ulcers because instead of breaking externally, they, bre they break internally, and they just sort of, they're, they're constantly nursing uh, all of their perceived wounds that they've received from other people, and they're always rehearsing how nobody treats them the way that they deserve to be treated. Nobody respects them or cares about them as much as, as they deserve. That's what James is talking about here. And I just want to point something out 
it might sound strange, but I think if you're honest, you, you would agree with this. If, if I had to list the, the, the sins that the Bible talks about, I mean, even in the book of James, but certainly throughout, you know, the entire Bible, if you had to kind of lay out sins and you, you had to put them in the camps of severity and, and, you know, seriousness, I think most people would put grumbling in the category of, yeah, it's not a good idea, but it's not the worst thing that you can, you know, you're doing pretty good if all you struggle with is grumbling. But here, James, in this passage, he connects a constantly grumbling mood with the judgment of God himself. I mean, did, did, did you catch that? In verse 9, he says, don't complain, don't grumble, so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. And the reason why James connects this constant grumbling mood with the judgment of God, I think the reason why he does that is, is perfectly summarized and explained with this, this great quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, Mere Christianity. And when I, when I read this to you, I think it'll be real clear to you. C.S. Lewis had to have had James 5, 9 in mind when he wrote this. He said, Christianity asserts that we are going to go on forever. Now, there are a great many things that wouldn't really be worth bothering about if I was only going to live 80 years or so, but I had better bother about if I'm going to go on living forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are getting worse so gradually that the increase in my lifetime will not be very noticeable, but it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for it. And then he said this, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or to even enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on and on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each one of us, there's something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Now, Lewis's point there is that things like self-pity and bitterness and anger and all that that entails, those things feed on each other, and they devour the people that, that, that feed into them. And that will make you miserable enough in this life alone. I'll tell you something you already know. The most miserable people you know are the people that are constantly feeding into that. The most miserable people you know are people that are truly obsessed with themselves, constantly thinking about, how am I being viewed? How are people thinking of me? How are people treating me? And, and, you know, always feeling like, you know, I'm not being treated as well as I deserve. I'm not being appreciated like I deserve. Somebody snubbed me. Somebody, you know, didn't give me this or give me that. Those are the most miserable people on the planet. The question is, what if when you die, that just continues? What if the trajectory that your soul is on in this life, what if that just continues on infinitely? And that's basically what the Bible says is going to happen. That where we spend eternity is just the logical trajectory of, of the trajectory that's been set in this life. And so when James connects a, a, a grumbling mood, a grumbling heart with the judgment of God, it's not because grumbling is the unpardonable sin. It's because a heart that is constantly grumbling is a heart that has never understood grace. That's it. And if that, if that is never dealt with in this life, if there's no external force to, to nip that in the bud and begin carving out a different trajectory for you and I, which Scripture says is only possible when we surrender our lives to Jesus, that's going to turn us into something that, that we don't want to be. 
And, and so secondly, uh, James says we need patience toward others. We need patience with life. We need patience with other people. But thirdly, the third kind of patience this, this passage talks about is in verse, verses 10 and 11. This is patience in suffering. Verses 10 and 11 says, Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, first and foremost, I want to make sure that we understand what he says here. What, what, What James is saying is that suffering, when you apply patience to it, transforms your suffering into blessedness. That's verse 11. We count as blessed those who have endured. This, uh, this concept, blessedness, in the New Testament, it's basically the rough equivalent of what the Old Testament talks about when it uses this word you may have heard of called shalom. In the Old Testament, the word shalom, which usually gets translated peace in the English, Shalom is not the absence of conflict. Shalom is the presence of everything that the human heart was made for. It's the presence of deep satisfaction and hope and meaning and fulfillment and joy and contentment and rest that can only come as image bearers of God uh, exist in deep, intimate relationship with the God in whose image we're made. What James is saying here in no uncertain terms is that patience, when applied to our suffering, means that our suffering will have no power over us except to produce that shalom in us. Not overnight, it's not, you know, like something you microwave, but over time throughout this life. But, but here's, here's the sobering point, without patience, our suffering will never do that. Without patience, our suffering makes us pardon the cliche, bitter instead of better. And the supreme example, the specific example that James holds up to show us what this looks like, what it looks like to suffer patiently is Job. And to me, uh, that is one of the most encouraging examples that James could offer. And here's why I say that. If, If you're familiar at all with the story of Job, you know that at the beginning of the story, he loses just about everything someone could lose. He loses his wealth, he loses his family, he loses his health. But in response to that, you know, if, 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 you, if we didn't have the book of Job, then you would think, okay, suffering patiently means, you know, you just kind of have a stiff upper lip. You don't let people see how bad it gets to you. You know, you might want to scream, but keep that to yourself. You know, it's, it's basically spiritual stoicism. But you read the book of Job, and what is remarkably clear is Job was not stoic in his suffering, he was screaming. He's got all of these volatile emotions. He's ranting, he's raving, he's yelling, he's arguing his case. More than a few times he says things to God that really don't sound right. But at the very end of the book, kind of as a surprising twist, what we find is that Job, by God, Job is vindicated when all of his foolish friends who came in with their kind of moralistic view of the universe that told Job over and over again, there's no way God would let all these bad things happen to a good person, so you must have some unrepentant sin of in your life. Those friends that were so sure that the universe fit into the box that they had created, they were rebuked while Job was vindicated. And it's, it's, it's curious how Job could go through what he went through as seemingly poorly as he did, and yet at the end come out clean on the other side, vindicated by God himself. But the reason for it is, and this is the key to understanding the whole book of Job, the reason for it is 
that despite all of Job's ranting and raving and yelling and arguing and breaking down day after day and sometimes moment after moment, he never stopped aiming all of that at the presence of God. And so the point is that Job's life is proof that patience and suffering does not mean having this deep inner poise where you put your gloves up and you keep a stiff upper lip and you don't let it get to you. The Bible never teaches that. Jesus himself did not model that response to suffering. What Job shows us is that suffering with patience means you, you, you simply, this is all it boils down to, you refuse to allow your suffering to turn you away from God and into a self-centered person. Because no matter how painful life gets, you take every broken thought and feeling and emotion and you empty it at the feet of God, trusting that no matter how, no matter how broken it is and no matter how broken you are, God will find a way to clean it all up. That is the only way, biblically speaking, that is the only way to ensure that your and my suffering turns us into gold. So to summarize where we've come, where we've come from so far, what, what James is saying first, we need patience with life or we're never going to see what God could have otherwise done. We need patience with people or we ourselves are going to turn into somebody that we don't want to become. And thirdly, we need patience in suffering or our suffering will be wasted. It's never going to turn into the wisdom and the beauty and the character and the glory that Scripture says it can produce in us. But lastly, the last kind of patience we need, and this is really the main thrust of this entire passage, might sound strange to you, but we'll walk through it, is patience with God. Three times in this passage, James points us to the return of Jesus. He links our ability to wait patiently ultimately with the return of Jesus. And so what he's basically saying is that if you feel like you're a farmer who's plowed and worked and you have nothing to show for it, the return of Jesus means that one day the deepest longings of your heart will be fulfilled in a way that no harvest in this life could ever fulfill them. If you're being unfairly criticized and having your reputation maligned by people, the return of Jesus means that one day God's going to right every wrong and no injustice will remain. He's going to clean it all up. There's going to be no loose ends. And if you, like the prophets of old, like Job himself, are experiencing real suffering, I'm not talking about car trouble. I'm talking about real loss, real pain, real tragedy. The return of Jesus means that one day Jesus will complete the work that he started at Calvary. And when he does, he's going to wipe away every, every tear from every eye. And for all those who put their trust in him, the end of the story has been written, it can't be changed, and it will not disappoint. Now, it's fine to talk about that on a Sunday morning. That's a blessed thing to remind ourselves of. But I think if we got honest, you know, for a lot of us, we hear that, we know that intellectually, but that, that in and of itself, just saying that out loud doesn't really get us through what we're going through right now. Because, yeah, it's an, it's an amazing thing. It's a blessed thing that one day in the unknown future, God will repair everything. The plain fact, the reality is we're living on the wrong side of eternity right now. God has not fixed everything yet. And there's the rub. And we're impatient with God because we don't understand, you know, why he allows the things that he allows, why he takes the things that he takes, why he gives the things that he gives, and why the timing for all of that. And it's our impatience with God that leads to every other kind of impatience we have. And so logically, if we can develop patience with God's timing in our lives, then every other kind of patience that we need will fall into place. So the final question that remains is how do you develop that kind of patience, the patience that knows how to wait on God's timing with perfect trust? And I want to end the day answering that question in three ways. I want to give you an intellectual answer, a personal answer, and a theological answer. 
How do we develop the patience that enables us to wait on God? First, the intellectual answer. This is probably going to sound strange, but hopefully by the time I'm I'm, I'm done walking us through, it'll be a little little bit clearer. First off, if we're going to develop this patience that we need, I'll just make this personal for you. You need to know that the fact of your frustration with God's timing, paradoxically, is evidence of why he's a God worth trusting. One more time. The, the fact that you're frustrated with God's timing, the fact that, that the way that he works in your life and the timing of his work in your life, the fact that that so often confuses you and confounds you and you find yourself thinking, why, I, I just can't see what he's doing. The fact of your frustration with God's timing actually is in and of itself a reason that he's a God worth trusting. And here's why. Every one of us thinks we want a God who never confounds our wisdom. If we, if we ever got a God like that, that God would not be trustworthy because that God would be nothing more than a projection of ourselves. Every one of us, myself included, thinks we want a God who always does stuff that makes sense to us uh, and, and never operates in a way that causes us to require patience that never confounds our wisdom and our understanding and our insight. But the truth is, if God operated that way, if his wisdom always lined up with our wisdom, if what he sees and how he operates always lined up with how we see and how we operate, then he would no longer be a God worth serving, a God worth worshiping, a God worth devoting our lives to because he would be a God no more wiser than any of us. And so it's actually the fact that he so often frustrates us and confounds us with his timing that is in and of itself a reason why we can trust him. And a woman named Elizabeth Elliot put this better than I've ever heard it. I found this quote a couple of years ago. It meant a lot to me then. Hopefully it means something to you now. In 1976, there was this huge missionary convention where thousands of college students were in attendance and Elizabeth Elliot spoke And she told the story of of, um, five young missionaries and how one night back in the 1950s, these five young missionaries got together to worship God and they sang a hymn, uh, We Rest on Thee, Our Shield and Our Defender. The next morning, they made contact with an Amazonian tribe with the intent to reach that tribe with the gospel because they were an unreached people group. And when they made contact with that tribe, all five of them were speared to death. One of those five missionaries was a man you may have heard of, Jim Elliott, who was actually Elizabeth Elliott's husband. And so one morning, they got together and sang, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. The next morning, they lost their lives in obedience to what God had called them to do. And here's what Elizabeth Elliott said. They were speared in the course of their obedience. Now, what does that do to your faith? Does it demolish it? A faith that disintegrates is a faith that has not rested in God himself. You've been believing in something less than ultimate, some neat program of how things are supposed to work. You've not recognized God as sovereign in the world and in your life. You've forgotten that we're told to give up all right to ourselves, lose our lives for his sake, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The word is sacrifice. She went on and said, God is God. And if he is God, he's worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that rest is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. And then she ended by quoting Evelyn Underhill who said, if God were small enough to be understood, 
he would not be big enough to be worshipped. That is an incredibly hard pill for us to swallow in a culture as pragmatic as ours where we so desperately want to maintain the illusion that we are in control of our lives. But biblically speaking, if we, if we can learn to surrender our lives to a sovereign God whose wisdom we'll never plumb the depths of in this life, if we can learn to lay our lives in the hands of a God accepting that we will never fully understand His work or His timing in this life, as hard as that is, as counterintuitive to the human heart as that is, it will lead to incredible spiritual health and the rest that our souls so desperately need. That's the intellectual answer to this problem of how we develop patience. But in and of itself, that's pretty cold. And that's kind of abstract and theoretical. And so secondly, let me give you a personal answer to this problem. This is, this is low-hanging fruit. This is pretty obvious. But secondly, if we're going to develop patience with God and His timing in our lives, we simply need to see how patient God has been with us. We need to see how patient God has been for us, God has been with us, and God remains with us every single moment of our existence. As far as I know, I was thinking about this all week, as far as I know, Christianity is the only belief system that asserts that God himself in the person of Jesus required patience. But the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, despite the fact that he despised the shame of the cross, he endured the cross. That's the that's the same word, hupomino, that James uses here in chapter 5. And so simply put, if you and I are ever going to learn to develop patience with God's work and God's timing in our lives, we simply need to see how patient Jesus has been on our behalf, in our place, and how patient he remains with us day by day. What that means is, and I'm sure this is going to hit home for somebody, if you are like a farmer waiting for the late rains and you feel like your life has just not gone the way it was supposed to go, what, you need, what your soul needs to know more than anything else is that no one knows what it's like to have their life not turn out the way it should more than Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one to live a perfect life, and at the end of that life, instead of being rewarded for it, to use James' metaphor here, his late reigns never came. And Jesus did that so that by trusting in him, we could know that however arid, however dry, however blistering the heat is that we experience and whatever God calls us to walk through, in Jesus, the promise of the gospel is that our late rains will arrive. It might not be the rain that we prayed for. It might not be the harvest we imagined, but knowing God, it will, it will be better. If, 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 if you have people in your life that are treating you unfairly right now, then, then what you and I need to see more than anything else is that no one knows what it's like to be untreated fairly more than Jesus does. He was abandoned and betrayed, not just by his enemies, but even by his closest friends, the people that he'd invested his life in. They did, some of them denied even knowing him. And at the end, all he could pray for was their forgiveness. And if you're here and you're like the prophets of old or you're like Job and you are experiencing real suffering, real loss, real tragedy, you need to know more than anything else that no one knows what it's like to suffer unjustly more than Jesus. He went through a kind of suffering that we'll never have to go through. Not so that we would never suffer, but so that our suffering would have no power over us except to make us more like him. And what we need to see on the cross is that when Jesus went through all of that, when he had every reason to quit... 
He chose to stay. He chose to endure. He chose this Greek word that James is talking about here. And the more that we see his patience on our behalf, and the more that we understand that that patience is new every morning, his mercies are new every morning, poured out on us by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, will grow in the ability to practice patience with God's work and God's timing in our lives. Whether you're getting what you don't want or you're not getting what you do want, you'll be able to bear up under that because you'll know that whatever the reason is for what God's walking you through, even if you never get that question answered in this life, you'll know that a God that went through everything that Jesus went through for you, that God can be trusted. Even if he never answers your questions, even if you never understand why in this life, you'll know a God that went through all of that for you can be trusted. He's got to have a reason. He's got to have a plan. There's the personal reason. Thirdly and finally, I want to give you a a theological answer to this question. And this is really James' challenge to us all throughout this passage. If we're going to develop this patience that we need, we have to learn to look forward to the future that God has promised. I mentioned this earlier, but all throughout this passage, James links our ability to wait patiently with the return of Jesus. And that's because when Jesus returns... He has promised something for those who put their trust in him unlike anything any other belief system in the history of mankind has ever even offered, has ever even talked about, which is the thing that the Bible refers to as resurrection. You've maybe heard me say this before, but I'm just going to say, we don't spend nearly enough time dwelling on the resurrection and all that it means. See, even a belief system that promises heaven, which pretty much all of them do, Even a belief system, a religion that promises heaven that somehow your soul is going to continue on in bliss, all that is, all that's really promising you is a consolation for the life that you've lost. Jesus promises more because the resurrection is not just the consolation for the life that you've lost, it's the restoration of the life that you always wanted but never had. In the resurrection, the promise of the gospel is you will get everything back and you will get it back in a way that's better than you ever imagined it could be. Meaning when Jesus Christ completes the work that he began in this world, when the kingdom of God is fully realized, what what the promise is for you and I by grace through faith in the name of Jesus is you will have, you'll get your body back. Not your old body, but the body you always wanted but never had. You'll get your life back, the life you always wanted but never had. You'll get your relationships back, the relationships you always wanted but never had. You'll get this whole world back, completely renewed and completely restored. This this reality that at least a part of you, the deep recesses of your heart has quietly sensed you were made for and you've looked for in this life, but you've never been able to find that and nothing less is what the resurrection promises to all who put their trust in Jesus. No other religious figure, no other belief system in history has dared offer that. But when you and I learn to hide our disappointments and our frustrated hopes and our unanswered questions and all the things in this life that have so taxed our patience and brought us to the end of ourselves over and over and over again, when we learn to hide all of those things in the return of Jesus and all that that return entails, We will grow in the ability, we will gain the ability to wait patiently because we will know that Christianity offers something that no other belief system offers, which is something worth waiting for. So we've arrived at the end of our time together. I want to call the worship team up and I want to leave you today with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. I usually break this out a few times a year just because of how much it means to me. 
Whatever God's leading you through this morning, I hope this means something to you. Believer, if your inheritance be a lowly one, you should be satisfied with your earthly portion. For you may rest assured that it is the fittest for you. Unerring wisdom ordained your lot and selected for you the safest and best condition. A ship of large tonnage is to be brought up the river. Now in one part of the stream there is a sandbank. Should someone ask, why does the captain steer through the deep part of the channel and deviate so much from a straight line, his answer would be, because I should not get my vessel into harbor at all if I did not keep to the deep channel. So it may be, you would run aground and suffer shipwreck if your divine captain did not steer you into the depths of affliction where waves of trouble follow each other in quick succession. Some plants die if they have too much sunshine. It may be that you were planted where you get but little. You were put there by the loving husbandman because only in that situation will you bring forth fruit unto perfection. Remember this, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, divine love would have put you there. You are placed by God in the most suitable circumstances. And if you had the choosing of your lot, you would soon cry, Lord, choose my inheritance for me. For by myself will I'm pierced through with many sorrows. Be content with such things as you have, since the Lord has ordered all things for your good. Take up your own daily cross. It is the burden best suited for your shoulder and will prove most effective to make you perfect in every good word and work to the glory of God. Here's the last sentence. Down busy self and proud impatience. It is not for you to choose, but for the Lord of love. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father, it is a, it's just a fearful thing to stand in your presence and ask you to develop patience in me and patience in us because I shudder to think what you might have to lead us through, what you might have to give us, what you might have to take from us to develop the patience that we need. I'm sure that there's a lot of people listening to this right now that are in the middle of something like that. They're in between the reins and it's hard and there's questions and it's painful and it's the dark night of the soul or the wall or whatever we call it. God, I just ask, would you make us the kind of people that trust you, that trust that you're good even if we don't get our questions answered? Would you make us the kind of people that go back to the cross and see the patience that our Savior put on display for us that when he had every reason to leave, he stayed, he endured And he's patient with us every day. His mercies are new every morning. Make it more real to us than it ever has been so that the patience that you've displayed for us will make us people that can be patient with your work and your timing in our lives for your glory and our joy. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. All God's people said, amen.